0: New intro music to the Shabbat. No, well, not not really. But yeah, for those of you listening online a little early, we're here talking about Parashat Naso. Um getting jump-started a little on the early side, seeing if we can fit into my son's nap schedule. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's actually
1: so he could participate. Right,
0: well we do want him to participate. This is a, this is it's good to have our young ones listening to the Torah Ami. and learning all sorts of fun and amazing things in it. Um, so this week, Rabbi uh, Shlomo Katz had a very interesting question tied into this week's Torah portion, and he said he tells a story in which this rabbi says the most important thing to know about God is that God never laughs. And I say I heard that, and I thought, what are we talking about? Very confusing. What do you mean? And I thought I read somewhere in Psalms, He does laugh at the wicked. His point to tell the, the rabbi's point in the story is, God doesn't laugh at us when we determine to do better next time and the example that he gives that the proof text sort of for this from this week's portion is talking about the Nazarite so the Nazarite has this whole plan right so the Nazarite's gonna he's gonna avoid the wine he's gonna he's going to be careful about dead people he's gonna make himself holy grow his hair out all this stuff and he's uh, he's doing great he's even avoiding raisins which I have to say is very difficult to do there were raisins on the, on the plate today so you know it's a challenge he's very careful And then some guy leans over and says, hey, I got something to tell you, and dies right on his shoulder. (laughs) And now the Nazarite's unclean. And he has to start over again.
1: No fall of his
0: own. No fall of his own. It's a complete accident, not his problem. What's amazing is that, so he goes through the little cleansing process and whatnot, and he starts all over again. He has to. It's not not an option. Like, well, if you want to, you can. Yeah, it's like, oh, that didn't work out. Maybe you shouldn't do that (laughs) again. Maybe next year. Or maybe, maybe that wasn't for you. But he does it anyway. He has has to, again. And so the the lesson learned from this is that when there is, in this case it's accidental on his part, but for us, sometimes intentional, we do something wrong and our holiness with God is interrupted. And we decide we want to restart that holiness again. God doesn't laugh. God doesn't say, ha, that's ridiculous. Sure, see if that works. Because for the poor Nazarite, it feels like, sure, yeah, we'll see if it works this time. Yeah, you probably cut your hair off again and someone's going to die on your shoulder two weeks later. But the, Nazarites, the fact that the Nazarite starts all over again is the idea that God gives us honest second chances. He legitimately lets us demonstrate that we will do better next time. And that's proof not only for the accidental, like with the Nazarite, but also for the intentional. Um, and I think we see that in this week's Haftara, talking about Samson, because Samson's story ends that way. You know samson gets to the very end he's made a lot of really bad mistakes and god he says you know just give me one more chance and i'll avenge uh my eyes and one, one, one more chance to serve you and god could very easily have said yeah sure right so i'm gonna make you strong again you're probably gonna break those bonds run off and find the closest delilah and you know we're gonna start this process <laughs> all over again but he doesn't God gives Samson an honest second chance. So the idea of God never laughs the sense that God doesn't laugh at us. He doesn't say, sure, like that's going to happen. Instead, he gives us an opportunity to prove ourselves this next time, uh, just like he does with the Nazarite. He's he the Nazarite. Um, he requires the Nazarite to try again. And I think that's such a great inspiration for us. Uh, and encouragement with kids, too. I think that's a challenge. You know, Kids, they say they'll never do it again. It's hard to believe them sometimes. Uh, my son hasn't gotten to that stage yet, mostly because he can't talk. But he's <laughs> no, telling us. I understand. Right? Yeah, that's true. He's probably telling you that all the time. Well, not all the time. He's perfect,
2: but sometimes. <laughs> I saw that smirk. I saw that. He knows smirk. you're talking. He does. Yeah. Ah, ah.
0: Yes, sir. I think it, maybe it's even more
1: than that. And that's that's why it's really pretty astounding that idea that he doesn't laugh, doesn't doesn't dismiss us because he or mock us because he knows I mean I thought about it before when you tell God you know I you know, I am so sorry that was wrong I don't ever want to do that again we almost want to hedge our bets because we don't know who we'll do it again but we say I don't want to but he knows
2: mm.
1: he knows if, he, it's not just that he knows our heart and our intention he knows the outcome of what we're saying that's right so it's even more than that the idea that he would not mock knowing
3: the end from the beginning Right.
1: knowing that we actually might again do it is pretty astounding. I mean, just that notion that to me shows just almost an incomparable maturity and a, and an incomparable uh, recognition of frailty. I mean, that's just unbelievably gracious.
0: Right. It is. And it's, it goes in. So, uh, my father-in-law, I don't have what me today because I forgot it at home, but getting gave me this really cool, uh, book that my, my dad surrounded. and my father-in-law have yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right here. I'm sandwiched here. Um, the, uh, the, the joke-inspired version. Yeah. The humish The is yeah. it's got the uh, um, Hasidic uh, flavor to it. Very cool. Um, and so I've got the Numbers book, and I was reading through this week, and one of the things we're talking about, the Nazarite is perfect proof of the power that God has given us. And uh, they say that the Nazarite's ability to speak and to forbid certain things to himself by making a vow... Uh, cool. And thereby making a lack of a haircut holy is proof of the power that God has given his people. And we talk about God not laughing at us. It's it's that same idea. God has given us the capacity to overcome our baser inclinations or evil inclinations, and he he respects that. He wants us to embrace that potential in us. And the Nazarite demonstrates some of that power by saying, okay, so I'm not going to cut my hair for at least 30 days. I mean, there definitely are... There are some young men, myself included. that decided to do that. It was not holy. Not that it was bad, but it wasn't holy. Um, And it was just an opportunity to do something for fun, whatever. But the Nazarite, by simply saying, I'm doing it for this reason, I'm making a vow for this reason, makes it holy, which is pretty remarkable. So the words that come out of his mouth have spiritual transformative power. And that is the... That God has put in Maybe even in all human beings,
1: even those who oh. don't believe. You know, the power yeah. of positive thinking can be overblown, but it's not overblown to say that there's power of positive speaking. Right, right. And there actually to say, "Well, I'm not going <coughs> to do that again," or "I'm going to do such and such" is valuable, but it is far more valuable to actually say it out loud. Right. Say. This is the person I want to be. This is the way that I want to behave. It actually is... is we can't say that it's just transform, transformative and to say that it's it's a guarantee, right? but it has positive effect in us.
3: Well, it's, we go back to Genesis. Right. God could have gone, and now there's worlds, heavens, waters, earth. He didn't do that. He spoke the world in the beginning because there is power in those words. Right. Mm-hmm. And this I think is one of the reasons why Judaism differs dramatically from Christianity, normative Christianity, in that prayer is always out loud. If you want to pray that to yourself, that's all thinking, not praying. Praying is an out loud thing because there's value in speak out of the abundance of the heart. We speak these things. So if, if we're going to pray we pray out loud to the Holy One, blessed is He, who hears. He says, He hears the prayers of the righteous. So when we pray, having been made righteous by the blood of Messiah, He hears us. He doesn't hear our thoughts. He hears
0: our words. And the, uh, that concept plays into what to do when you sin. In this week's portion, we talk about confession. That if, you, if you do this, this is how you write it. Um, and one of the things you're supposed to do is confess Number mm-hmm. Numbers 5, I think. Anyway, the, the confession, the, the sages, there's this long debate about the power of confession and the discussion of what does what it um, ultimately do and their conclusion is that even confession that's insincere, for which we actually apologize on Yom 4 because power. it's actually a sin to confess insincerely, you should be doing it with, legitimately from the heart, even that has a positive impact because it begins to chip away at the arrogance in our hearts that's saying, oh, I didn't do anything wrong. So even when you confess, and don't even intend not to sin again when it's, so it's an insincere confession, it it will, it will, the intent is that it will stir up in your heart a certain degree of embarrassment of what you've done, and that will move you
3: towards repentance. John said, if we sin, now he's speaking only to believers, Right. if we sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Yeshua. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This only happens if we confess our sins. Yeah, it's part of the repentance process.
0: It's making that confession. That's right. Um, And we see that in this week's portion talking about that. So... um, I've been popping around all over the portion because I want to encourage you all to, you know, feel free to bring up anything in this week's portion that you would like to discuss. Uh, one of the things that shows up at the beginning of the portion, of course, we talk about the, the carriers of the, um, the various uh, tabernacle implements, different pieces. They, uh, there's an interesting question about some of the language in the uh, the portion. So you have the previous passage was, was talking about the sons of Kohat. That was one of Levi's sons. This is of Gershon. This is of Merari. Those are the three sons of Levi that God draws from those families to uh, do different tasks in the movement, movement of the tabernacle. Yes. And so the sons of Kohat, it, there's a special word there it talks about like lifting up their heads. It's a special honorary term. It's different from the term used for the census for the normal people of Israel. That's all. And then, in uh, with the sons of Gershon, it says, "Do this for them also," which is the extra word thrown in there. Also, for the sons of Merari, it doesn't mention either of them. And so, there's this discussion: like, well, what the sons of Merari are like? But like the, you know, the runty third son, like, what they don't get like as much uh, cool language as their as their brothers. Like, what's the deal there? And they say one interpretation that from Rashi is. That it has to do with the physical strength. Sure. So These the, guys are carrying beams. So the sons of well, actually, that's the funny thing. The sons of Merari had the heaviest items of all, but they have wagons, which we talk about yeah. at the end of this portion. So they don't need to carry the big items very long. The sons of Gershon also have wagons, but not as many. So some of them do have to carry some of the cloths and whatnot, the ta- tent elements, of the tabernacle. Yeah. The people who most need the strength blessing of the sons of Kohath because they're required to carry the ark and the menorah and so forth. Solid gold is heavy. Without any help, just with the poles. Just with the poles, they were uh, they were explicitly told not to put them in the wagons. Uh, which was David's mistake. We saw that story and how that turned out. Little tumor things. Well, that was the uh, that was the Philistines. Um, but thinking about David, guy, he he puts it on there, and well, uh touched it. it. Yeah, Uza. He he touches it, and guys, uh, uh, yeah, it doesn't go so well.
3: But the guys that I mean, they get little tumor things,
0: right? When they put it in the wagon, so yeah, that was, yeah, the Philistines put in the wagons to uh, get rid of it. They didn't want anybody anywhere close to it anymore. Um, so we see this idea of like this this miraculous physical capacity given to somebody for a specific mission. The sons of Kohat are are assigned a specific task. Sons of Merari and Gershon are as well. Which is interesting because in the previous portion, we got introduced to the census of all the different tribes. Why? What's the, what's like the The most obvious reason why they would want to count up the number of people? War. War. Army, right? You're going to, this is a military census. That was the last portion. That was the last portion. This week's portion, oddly enough, uses the exact same word. It says that they were everyone who was going out to, and the word in Hebrew is Seba. Today, if you are talking about your service in Israel, you talk about serving in Seba. Uh, that's actually, Sahal is the Hebrew acronym for IDF. And Seba is the word that begins at, Z in Sahal is seva. it's army. So it's the, uh, the Israeli army forces, something like that. I can't remember the whole acronym right now off the top of my head. But the point is that Zahal, which is the, the Hebrew acronym, comes from this, this word, Oddly enough, when it talks about the Levites carrying curtains and carrying poles and beams, it says those go out to the Zeva, the Legion in some English translations. So God recognizes that even though these individuals will not be fighting in the traditional sense, they're all part of a war. We're part of a conflict that is much bigger than this dude over here with the sword and that dude over there with the sword and they're gonna clash and meet in the middle. There's a it's a battle that involves priests whose primary instruments are harps and, and guitars. It's a battle that involves men and women doing a job that God assigned them to simply carry the tabernacle. That it's if you think of it, Paul, Paul recognizes this idea. He talks about um, uh, serving God in this, and he uses military language um, and serving God on a day-to-day basis because we have an enemy that's not flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. And so these these men, they're summoned to this task um, and the, the Hasidic concept, they talk about this again in the Humash uh, book, talking about... Um, the idea that like the tabernacle was a uh, holiness counterbalance to the evil of the wilderness. They say that on a spiritual level, the wilderness is dangerous because it's just a it's an unpleasant place spiritually, not just physically. It's not just dry and full of scorpions and snakes and whatnot physically. But the reason why all that does particularly well there is because the environment itself has got evil in it. So the mishkan, the tabernacle, provides an ex- like a supernatural holiness bubble around the people living there. And so if you think about it that way, it's like it's a, it's a fight. Mm-hmm.
3: It's a war. And he's called out the Levites of the army. Yes, sir. So I, I don't think the priests had the harps. The Levites had the harps. Oh, well, that's the true. priests had the knives, actually. That's true. And uh, yeah, the, the Levites were singing and playing harps and that like kind of cool stuff. Um, but the, the, the army and the, and the fact that it is a war, uh, is borne out. And what you're saying is true. Because it's borne out, even in the, in the first place. They finally get into the land. When they're doing the Jericho thing. Who's at the head of the army? Right? It's the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant. So, there, there's no question the priests are involved with that. They are going to serve. Just not in the same way. Mm-hmm. But, this just goes to show us that you know, we don't all need to stand on the street corner and shout that people are going to hell. There is a spiritual battle going on, and it begins in the home. It begins in the heart of man and moves out from there. And we all have something to play. With. And I, I think it's foolhardy to think that not every man is involved in that battle. Well, right. He may not recognize that he's in that battle, <laughs> which means he's, you know, warring for the other side. But we're all on a side and we're all
0: warring. And and Paul references this again talking about in 1 first Timothy he talks about the idea of like, you know, a soldier recognizes who he really serves. Mm-hmm. So he dedicates himself exclusively to his master That's because right. he recognizes that he's not his own. He has someone else he's serving. And I think this is, this idea of it being a conference ongoing um, should help us recognize that uh, all of our tasks are part of that fight. You know, it's so easy to think, well, you're right, the Levites carrying the ark, they're at the front, right? Okay, that's cool. Um, there's that cool story where the, 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 the Levites, the, the priests are the ark, the Levites are out there with their song and dance, and they lead the army into the, the war, that was in honor of the miracle that God would do to save them from the enemies, And that uh, that works out great. So that's, you know, again, you kind know, the soldier concept of the priest. But these guys were tasked with carrying really big, heavy pieces of wood.
3: Well, the menorah never went into battle. Right. The Ark of Incest never went into battle. And to your point, neither did that folded up turquoise giant tapestry.
0: You got the goatskins, you're a soldier. Yeah. Uh, It's a very interesting idea And I think that's important to us Because throughout our lives The whole whole Hasidic concept of Repairing the world Is saying that our jobs Don't end when we get out of shul When we stop praying When we stop studying scripture Our fight is ongoing Because our intent is not simply To imbue holiness into already holy things Or to pay attention for those moments But to imbue holiness in everything so when we eat and we bless God for the food Or we bless God after the food Especially as we're finished We've actually made our food eating holy A time of worship, a of, a time of worship. We go to work we have a good attitude And we serve God We stop working at sundown on Fridays We start working again at sundown on Saturdays What have we done? We've imbued holiness into our, our daily work schedule And so that's an ongoing fight Whether it's the things we look at or don't look at The things we talk about or don't talk about whether it's the way that we treat the random stranger on the street. I mean, they were even saying, well, one Rishak Flesher in his uh, talk was saying, one of the, one of the traditions, uh, I think it's the Baal Torim would talk about this idea of like, you want to even greet like the random Gentile. Just say hello. Like that's bringing light to the world. Mm-hmm. So,
1: uh, the tzav, uh, tzav, actually in the English Standard Version says, you do duty, do their duty, which mm-hmm. reminds us of Yeshua's words in the parable about the servant plowing or the servant keeping the sheep. You know, the notion that when they're, when they're, when they're somehow recognized, their response is, we've only done our duty. And, and I mean, congregationalists, early like pilgrim type people, early settled America, the congregationalists, maybe had a better perspective of this than, the, than those from high church, like Anglican or Roman Catholic, which had a clergy. Where the, the congregationalist, the clergy was a was a lay person. That's the that whole idea of lay person. Essentially, the notion that every man in his profession had an opportunity to glorify God right. in his profession. Right. And it's that same idea. And when we carry it further, we know that it's not just profession. It's not just the job that society sees that we do. But that it's even more than that. It's actually much more, uh, much more present than that. That all of us, children, the smallest child, to the oldest person actually has the opportunity to fulfill their duty and their duty is bound up in what God brought them into the world to do. And what God brought them into the world to do and to do it in a way that brings glory to him in the small things and the big things, in everything. That is our duty.
0: Our duty is to be what we were created to be. Right, Right. and then that is true fulfillment. And in doing any task because I think that that's every task. Every task. Because that's one of the, um, one, you know, Timothy Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavor, he talked about this idea that um, our, every work, every job you do, the janitor, is participating with God in the continuation, the completion of creation. When God assigned Adam to tend the garden, this was an act of holiness, an act of godliness. Because what he does is he's giving Adam the opportunity to continue creation. God intentionally ends creation. It is good, don't get me wrong, but he ends creation and it's, in a sense, incomplete. He puts man on earth to continue the work that he started. So in everything that we're doing, we are participating with God in creation. My dad has a theory. He says that that boys have two uh, uh, tasks in the world. They either destroy or they create. There's not an in-between. Um... So, and if you watch, you watch your small child. It's pretty amazing. Um, they build little towers and they knock them down. This is basically what they all want to do. This is all they do, pretty much. As long as they build it at least once. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, they learn to build it. But the point is that this is like this is like the, the end result. And I think that's so true in our lives is that we basically have a creative power and a destructive power. that's not in between. And so, when you're going around doing good you are in, you're utilizing that creative power. When you do evil, you destructive power. And Romans, Paul makes it clear that the creation groans because of our sin. That's right. You know, when people talk about global warming and whatnot, and uh, oh my goodness, the planet's going to die because of man, they're partly correct. They're incorrect on the method. It's not driving your car. Um, in fact, it's probably more likely that most of the liberals are doing a whole bunch of things that are destroying the world. Uh, the point, though, is to say that when we sin we disobey God, we are corrupting the very existence. The sages teach this idea that when it says that all flesh had corrupted its way on the earth, talking about the time of Noah, it was this this concept that humanity had become so evil that even the animals were learning evil from man, that even the animals were were straying out of their God-given tasks and roles because man had so perpetuated sin on the earth. And so when we think about it that to that degree, it helps to highlight the fact that the universe doesn't function on what we see. There is a much deeper reality that's that's happening all around us all the time. When we were reading through the Shavuot prayers this week, um, if you hope you got a chance to do that in the in the uh, the prayer book, the I lost the word now. Moksor, thank you. My wife there. Always helpful. She was. Moksor. Um, this week in the Moksor for Shavuot, there's a very interesting analogy they pull. They play off of Ecclesiastes, talking about the word of God, commenting to God, the Torah, talking to God about the creation of the world. This is not Ecclesiastes, it means Proverbs. Same author, different book. Proverbs. book of Proverbs is this this speaker. And it's the, it is the word, it's the Torah. The wisdom is what it calls itself throughout the text, but the the sages I think correctly identify that it's the word of God, it's the Torah. And John, in the book of John, uh, chapter one, recognizes that the word of God is Yeshua. So he sees this this creation power as kind of a as as being implemented by a person, by a character, uh, person maybe not the right word I want to use right now, to try, uh, trinitarian character uh, that's speaking. So the book of Proverbs is this character The sages identified this as the Torah It's the Torah speaking It's the word of God um, What's amazing is the word of God Is used by God to create the universe I don't know you But I had not thought about until this year To think about the Torah created the universe Thou shalt love the Lord your God With all your heart, soul, and mind Created the universe See I always thought of the word of God In a generic sense He spoke, we talked about earlier That creates the universe And that's true but the Torah is actually the... The Torah says, I was there. I wasn't just there. I was the line that you used to measure. The instrument. I was the creation. tool to create the universe. The Think about it from that perspective, you start to realize the Torah
3: has an unbelievable, deep, mystical power. Well, it goes beyond that. As the sages say, that the Torah living Torah. This is Mashiach. This is why young people are not permitted to study the creation story because they may inadvertently blaspheme Messiah, blaspheme Hashem.
0: Because this creative power, which is the Word of God, it's like, wow, that's an interesting. So you think about, it, like when you study the Torah, you're not just reading God's Word, which is cool enough by itself. I mean, every letter in the Bible is read, if you think about it that way. But more importantly the, uh, you're reading how the universe functions Without the, it's not just that the world was created for the Torah the world was created by the Torah and I think that starts to really change our view of our obedience to God so our obedience to God is actually of, of great significance it is, it is part of our partnership with God in the continual creation of the universe and when we sin against God, that should be enough to terrify us and tell us we should never do that again. but if it, if that's not enough, you should recognize that you're acting actively destroying God's creation in that moment. You are attempting to undo what God did in creation. Um, Rabbi Mike and Yishai Fleischer in talking about this week's portion, they talk about the sota, which is the, the 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 woman who gets in trouble in this in the numbers in this week's portion. And they say something very interesting about it, this idea that it, there's a tradition that says that if the husband who accuses his wife or, or, or is jealous of his wife and brings her to the priest, if he has committed adultery, then the sotah path will not work. The woman won't die. If she's committed adultery, she won't die because the husband is not innocent. And the, and the idea that Rabbi Mike was talking about is that there is a spiritual power at, at work here this isn't magic. It isn't like, well, have the woman drink this and let's say these words and poof, you know. If she's guilty, she dies. If she's not, she lives. And that's the end of it. Instead, what we learn is that it is a function of godliness in the universe. If the husband is worthy, then this is what will happen. Because it's the power of God working through the the, the righteousness that the husband is exhibiting but the husband is not worthy of work because it's not the the, the magic of the steps rather it is the righteousness that the man has brought into the world and this is one reason why I like some of the Midrash teachings that seem odd about you know uh, Ephraim could yell and shake all of the land of Egypt I mean that sounds kind of weird you know there's a tradition that says that the uh, Baal Shem Tov when he would walk on mountains would just he would walk across a a ravine or a crevice in the mountain and the ground would just Mm -hmm. fill up. Or, there's a really cool story in in the book of Matthew, talks about our master walking on the water. These are not just to be cool. They're not just superhero stories. What do they teach us? They teach us that super righteous people, men and women who are so attuned to God, the physical earth works for them. The physical earth bends to them because It was created for them, because how this world really functions is on how you and I live day to day. Gravity is cool, but it's it's a much lower level law than prayer and good deeds.
3: Isn't there a uh, real quick, um, Rick? Isn't it what's the uh, the midrash about the whole Sanhedrin is against this one guy and the walls Eliezer you know, right it Eliezer mm-hmm. the walls of the academy the walls of the academy uh, the walls of olhar. the academy the walls of the river runs backwards yeah you know all this <laughs> stuff and it, <laughs> that was Eliezer yeah. to your point you know the, the nature itself is at the command of God and the, the tzaddik is uh, over he's attuned to God yeah
2: well talking about the, the wife and the husband reminds me of the story of the woman brought in adultery to Messiah. Right.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point.
2: And, you know, they're related because he wasn't saying, don't make a judgment. But he was saying, make sure your judgment's coming from the right place. Mm-hmm. And just like the husband bringing in his wife, if he's not faithful, then who is he to bring his wife in mm-hmm. who's unfaithful? Mm-hmm. And so just as the men stood and brought in the woman and not the man, you know, to, to accuse her of adultery, caught in adultery, and he says, "Okay, you, without sin, cast the first stone." He's—he's he's not saying don't judge, but he's saying judge it from the right perspective. And you know, right. so those two just judge related. the right way, right?
1: Absolutely. The husband—not only was the man not there, the he's husband wasn't the there.
0: He's the one that does it, right? <laughs> Everything in that story is—is is, wrong. Is wrong, except what Shua does. It was—it was so she, yeah, right. she was the one. So the woman is probably wrong if she was actually caught in the act, but the the sent—the—the—the. The, the, the religious leaders who bring her there are wrong too because they're doing it the wrong way and that's something that's very important throughout the scriptures God makes it very clear that it's not enough the means don't justify the end or the end doesn't justify the means rather excuse me mm-hmm. it's not enough to do justice you must do justice justly mm-hmm. or as Robert, Robert E. Lee would say speak truth truthfully but the point being that like um, you, it's not enough that the end simply resulted in the bad guys being punished and the good guys being rewarded the process had to be correct that's right there was a process to follow. God put it in place on purpose. And if we stray from that, then we don't, we don't merit that. So that's why with the Sota, the, the woman might be guilty. She could be 100% guilty. But if the husband is also guilty, then she's not punished. All, all bets are wrong. It's all, it, doesn't, it all changes on that, on that point. And that's the same thing with Yeshua. Yeshua wisely recognized that the process had not been followed. Well, so he, he very astutely says, He without sin cast the first stone so if all of you guys did this correctly then uh, go for it mm-hmm. oh wait hmm.
3: Look, I can... the older ones are leaving they figured it out mm-hmm. first they're like oh,
0: yeah he got us um, but, but it's what's it's amazing good. about that is that the yeah, sages well, teach this idea Yeshua's efforts to save the woman is not you know the gospel of love overcoming the law it was the idea that throughout Judaism that the sages teach that we try not to condemn somebody to capital punishment. Now,
3: if they say if, if the Sanhedrin had convicted one man to death, it would be just an astonishing abomination.
0: It would be really sad. It would be I unbelievable. I don't
3: think Yeshua was trying to save a woman in any way, shape, or form. I think he was simply trying to be a tzaddik. Right. And that's my point, is to say that he's not. He's not
0: trumping law. He was actually fulfilling the law Great in its ultimate act. One of the teachings in the prophets, talking about Messiah, says that um, you know he will not judge by what he sees and not judge by what he hears, but he will judge
3: righteously. Which is, I think, where possibly one of his disciples was coming from, and Gamaliel stood up in the Sanhedrin and said, mm-hmm. "I don't think this is what we're supposed mm-hmm. to be doing here. Finding out."
0: And I think that's one of the things the sages talked about. That's why when Yeshua saves this woman, he's not, he's not violating the norm. He's actually doing exactly what he would all do. There's a teaching that, I mean, they say, when we read through all these passages, it's like, so this rebellious son, got to stone him. The, uh, the adulterous woman, you got to stone her. you got to stone the person who breaks the Shabbat, so on and so forth. The, the Talmud, I believe, points out that the only person to ever die for doing any of these things the was the guy carry carrying the sticks? the sticks. And then there's the man who blasphemes. And that's it. No one ever died for being a rebellious son. That was not because they were not rebellious sons. But there's a tradition that if they had two witnesses, they would intentionally interrogate the witnesses to see if their stories would not match up so they could invalidate them. Because they didn't want to put someone to death. That's right. Because, and so, I, so the the sense was, justice must be done justly. So God is just, he, he acts justly. So Yeshua follows the same path. So I'm glad you brought that up now.
2: So very little from what you said, I think his plan was always to save not only the woman but the men. And that's why in the end yeah, he purpose. says, go and sin no more. So that all who were there could hear that he it's not lack of judgment for her, but it was an understanding of, of the sin condition of all of us. Amen. And these men left recognizing they had a sin condition. And now the woman was allowed to leave recognizing her own sin condition and encouraged to sin no more.
0: And that, and that point goes back to what we talked about, about Hashem, right? He says, does not desire the wicked to perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the reason for the sages and the, the judges of Israel trying not to condemn someone to death is not because they were uncomfortable with carrying out the death penalty. Uh, I mean, I think if you, if you live in a world of constant offerings and sacrifices, you're not uncomfortable with death. Rather, it's a recognition that that's the end of the story. We want repentance, We want people to turn from their sin. So Yeshua, in saving the woman, he is, I agree, just doing what a righteous man should do. And at the same time, he is desiring to save her
1: because that's what a righteous man does.
0: He wants her to have a chance to repent. Not
1: just a chance because he speaks speaks with authority. That's the awesome thing about that story. He doesn't just say, go and try not to sin anymore. He says, go and sin no more, which means that's done. I mean, her will was bent at that moment. And yeah. That's pretty amazing. I mean, don't we all wish that he would say that to us? Mm-hmm. <laughs> a really but good to say, Transformative. That's mm-hmm. right.
2: What you said a Joshua, David in the Psalms peaked numerous times, but you will redeem, in, in not exact translation, but you will redeem because those that go down to the grave can no longer praise you. Mm-hmm. That's right. And he makes the, that over and over again that. That God doesn't bring the death on him that yeah, He do. Who, who's going to praise you when we're all in that's dust? That's right. So, so you know, David makes that point over and over again that that God does redeem and that God does rescue because those who go down into the pit no, or go down to the grave no longer praise Him. But He will give us the opportunity to continue. Absolutely,
0: mm-hmm. and that's a uh, David also says. You know, there is forgiveness with you so that you may be feared. Mm-hmm. As Paul says, it's the grace of God that brings us to repentance. Mm-hmm. We have second chance, and we we're talking about earlier when God doesn't laugh at us; He gives us an opportunity to change. That is 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 enormous. It's a significant opportunity. That is part of what God's doing. But the Sota, the sages teach. Read the commentary about the the adult woman who's caught here, right? So she gets in trouble. They say the reason why this ceremony is so incredibly long. I mean, read through it; it's like. Gotta do this, we gotta do that, and he's gonna make sure he reads the woman, you know, to speak this verse out loud yourself, you gotta do that too. And then and the sage just go on to say that he would make the woman like pace, you know, stand the whole time. Like don't let her sit down at all. Make her as uncomfortable as possible because the what the priest wants to do, he's trying so hard to do, is just to get the woman to say, I Yeah, did I did it. Because he doesn't want her to die. No word of mm-hmm. He doesn't want her to die. <laughs> He's just desperately trying to get her to confess her sin and let's move on with repentance. That's right. And if you think about that, I think that's just so powerful that God's, God's goal, I think sometimes it's so easy in, when we read the Torah to feel like God's, God's goal is justice. And that's not really true. God's justice is always merciful. His mercy is also always just. But the point is that He, he wants oh. us to repent. He wants us to serve Him. He wants
3: us to have one. And that,
0: more right. So he's giving us his extra opportunities, and it is the ultimate in tragedy when people spit back at God those second chances. That's right. When they take it for granted. This is why God is so opposed to the man who says in his heart, well, I'll get away with it. I can sin. It doesn't matter. And why God was so heartbroken, in the, in, as we read in, uh, a couple weeks ago in the Levitical pas- Leviticus passage. Talking about that they that the people didn't recognize the sin. They didn't recognize the punishment for their sin. And they just kept sinning. Seven times more I'll punish you, he says. Why? Because they refused to repent when he tried to get their attention. It says in Lamentations that the people of Jerusalem did not see their end.
4: It's like if they'd
0: just been aware, they'd just come and repent and come back to God, then all these things didn't have to happen. And of course, the ultimate in second chance, so to speak, is Yeshua. You know, Yeshua dies on our behalf and resurrects as the ultimate way of justice meeting mercy. So we satisfy justice completely, and yet we offer mercy to everyone who accepts
4: it.
1: Repeating
0: your you're saying, well, I think he's, he's expounding on it. On the, on the
1: Nazarite, it's so ironic that the Nazarite thing and the Sotah thing are things we see in the Gospels. Because the Nazarite actually acts too. The Nazarite is as well. I mean, really profoundly. And the, and it's it's cool the way they're both here together as well, right next to each other. Because the Nazarite, you know, it's like, what's the point of this? But when we see it born out, we see that it actually has, like you said, it has a very powerful end, in the sense that we see, first of all, we see a, a what appears to be a Nazarite vow on the behalf of Yeshua, which guarantees his return. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like it's like a it's like this is. the... I promise you. Not only did everybody said I'm coming back. I promise you I'm coming back with the, with the validity validity of the Nazarite vow. That's a mm-hmm. profound. And then on top of that, then you see Paul in Acts 21 and 22 using the same Nazarite vow as a baseline to establish a righteous and a pure heart. In other words, I have, I have, I do what I say, and I'm not. Double-minded. I'm not saying one thing to Gentiles and another thing to Jews. And the proof it is, I take this Nazarene
3: back. And I've got to get back to Jerusalem. So yeah, we so see it twice
1: in Acts, this. but yes, absolutely. Yeah. And so, if we've had that opportunity, not to say that sh- men all should, but at least, and that's one of the, or my encouragements, is, the men that decide to do it recognize that not cutting your hair between Pesach and 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 uh,
3: uh, Shavuot,
1: or maybe Lag BaOmer, that if you're doing it, do it for the for the notion of recognizing that Paul's establishment of his credentials as being a righteous, and righteous man that, that was without duplicity in the, in the, or hypocrisy, and
0: recognize that that's an opportunity for us to honor Paul and Yeshua in the Nazarite vow. Hmm. And the Nazarite, traditionally, the reason why the Nazarite follows the story of the Sotah is that the Nazarite is deemed a response to it. So the Sotah is an example of a woman who does something she shouldn't do. She gets in trouble. She kind of goes someplace she shouldn't be. And even if she didn't do anything really bad, she, didn't, she did not She something bad enough that it looks like she did something bad. So the Nazarite sees this and goes, whoa, that's scary. I mean, did you see how her belly swelled and her thigh exploded? Like, I don't want that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Ill. Ill.
3: Yeah. That's hard to...
0: That's in the, uh, the parenthetical message. Uh, yeah. yeah, whoa. So the point is to say that, like, the Nazarite, is response, the Nazarite man doesn't go... Well, I'm super holy, so I'm going to prove it by not cutting my hair, and I'm going to get really close to God. The Nazarite man says, I have that in me too. One of the things he Fleischer have pleasure, and Rabbi Mike, Rabbi, Mike was, Rabbi Mike was talking about, was it's like, the Nazarite's response is, I see that in myself. I see my capacity for evil. So let me take this vow to try to get closer to God in an effort to sort of put a barrier between that evil and myself. I, I recognize I don't want to be that person. I see what happens to that person. That's not who I want to be. So let me try to, to add on additional holiness to bolster my desire to be righteous. Um, and I think that that's something that was, they were talking about in, in the sages' commentary on, in, in, the, in the Chumash, was asking, it's almost like, do you run away from evil when you take on mm-hmm. holiness? And the, and the point is that both are very important. It's good to start with running away from evil. Learn first what not to do and then, uh, in terms of, and then take on additional things to try to make it stronger. Uh, sometimes we have a mistake, sometimes we thinking, well, uh, the sages, there are a lot of very righteous men throughout history that would not actually hold themselves to a higher standard, so to speak, because they didn't believe that they were worthy of, of doing that. So uh, they recognize that sometimes giving yourself too many rules that are not in scripture was unhealthy, um. But that being said, they're both, they're both, as, they, they play a role. So you can recognize sometimes that maybe that's not for me. So it's like when Paul talks about the men speaking about alcohol, he talks about some people who said, well, I don't, I'm not going to participate in that. And Paul says, so those people who, who you know, they're not going to eat the, the, the meat, sacrifice to idols, they're not going to drink the wine, whatever. He's like, don't look at them. Don't look down on them and say, oh, well, they're weak. That's, that's why they can't do that. In fact, that we should, we should try to pull them out of their legalism. Instead, what what Paul is saying is that like these these men and women, um, they're they're striving to be to be holy. Now, maybe maybe in this their case, it's a incorrect interpretation of scripture. Fine, but you should respect. You should let them pursue holiness in that method. There are some men who fast on Tuesdays or whatever, and not everybody does that. That's not in the scriptures, but some people think it's really important. Well, so the man who's not eating, let him do it to the Lord man who is eating, let him do it to the Lord. But the point is to let those men to take on those extra holiness elements in their lives um, and to support them in that uh, as they try to bolster their, their walk with God. That's what the Nazarite's doing. The Nazarite's taking on additional things to, su- to support his, his faith walk. And I know men, some of whom are in this room, who choose not to drink the wine even though it is particularly good. Because they, what are you rub it in? Oh, 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 but they have a good reason. Their, their desire is to, their desire is to set themselves apart in that capacity. For whatever the reason may be, uh, spirit the spiritual intent of it is is good. Their desire is to serve God by doing that in some way. And even though, in, in even in, in so in, in doing in walking in watching that, we don't critique it or say, well, that's that's a mistake. I wish that they were a little more free. We respect it because that's an effort to. Pursue godliness, pursue holiness um, I mean. through through additional work towards God. Uh, God doesn't look at the, the Rechabites and say, you know, your dad didn't really need to make you do that. Not drink wine. He looks at the Rechabites and says, you honored your father for generations. I wish that the people of Israel would, would honor me that way. Okay. So I think that... Um, I think, especially as in in our world today, where it feels like the only sin you can do is have a higher standard than the person standing next to you, um, we should be careful. We should really strive, even even when things are not biblically mandated, to honor those those um, and respect people who have uh, standards that might seem higher than what God has said or or what we have. Um, so, Parshat Naso. Towards the end here, we have a really long portion, really long discussion about all the princes, and we hear. And there are twelve gifts. There are twelve. There. Are, and uh, can it? Surely you memorized it by now, right? Like a silver plate and a ladle and a certain amount of of uh, is it silver or gold plate. One of the it's a plate, definitely a plate. And so and a ladle. the, okay. the spoon was. Called. That was it. There we go. Um, and, and, and ladle, and the uh, there's like grain offering, and there's a certain number of animals that we bring, and um, lo and behold, the next guy's bringing the exact same thing. By the time you get to number 9 or 10, you're probably like, wait, let me guess.
4: <laughs>
0: um, but the, uh, the beauty of it is, this is the longest chapter in the Bible, I believe, other than Psalm 19. Um, but God repeats it over and over again to show us that the gifts were all beautiful to him. They were all the same. And yet, each man gets his own space. God doesn't say, and so-and-so brought, and everybody else brought the same thing. It makes a point of recognizing each of their offerings. And the Midrash teaches, the sages teach that the uh, this all occurs on the first day that the tabernacle is set up. So if you read the book mm-hmm. of Numbers, it says, on the day the Mishkan was erected. They say, well, this is chronologically, actually, at the beginning of Leviticus. Uh, at the end of Exodus, when Moses builds the tabernacle. That's when all this happens. And they say that that what this shows us is that these leaders brought their gifts immediately. They wanted to be the first ones to give. Well, why was that important? Because they weren't last time. Yes, Julian, good job. Also, see, she's paying attention. Mm. Yeah. She's
2: watching
3: a little multitasking. She she's she's, she's definitely, definitely a mom. So, so did you read the?
2: Well, they each had a day, though, right? It was the first day, second day, third day.
0: Oh, right! But they were they were meeting right to bring their gifts, and the reason is because with the tabernacle, they list those very special special stones they bring last, and the sages say that's weird. But I had to think about. So here are all the gifts that were given for the tabernacle. We had goat hair, and we had, you know, wood, and we had some other things. And, oh, by skin. the way, these unbelievably gorgeous, incredible stones that light up automatically whenever you have to ask God a question. Those are really cool. Well, it was at the end, because that's not that important. And the sages say, why is it listed last? Like, why? I mean, I would put those at the front, you know? You know, we're going to talk about the gifts. It's like, and number one, are these stones? Well, they say it's because the, the, the leaders all said amongst themselves, Well, we don't want to overrun the people. Let the people bring their stuff first. We'll just fill in the gaps. Well, we know from the story that the people were so generous, they had to be told to stop giving. So the leaders are at the end, and they go, I don't have to give. We gave everything. So I guess we'll give them these stones. That's all we got that they don't have. And that was seen as sad. They didn't take the initiative. They were not leaders. So they learned their lesson. And in this week's portion, they make it clear that they were the first ones to give an offering to the tabernacle.
3: So the, uh, did you read the commentary about Rashi's hassle? Rashi is uh, concerned. He doesn't get it. How is it that they brought the same thing and the text goes through and lists everything one. Eleven more and there's two possibilities. I can't remember what the second one is but the first one is that each one is unique in its own right in that it's focusing on a different aspect of giving. Okay. And that's where Rashi went with some guy's commentary that that was was what it was all about. The alternative was that they were all exactly the same. But he's saying he likes, because literally, they are. And that's his focus, right? He's always a literal guy. But he went with the one that had a spiritual focus behind it that each each one (coughs) was focusing on a different aspect of spiritual importance. For the people of Israel, and that made them all unique, even though they sound like they're exactly
0: the same. The, uh, the uh, Rabbi Mike was saying, he was or Yishai Flash they were talking to this, and they said it's kind of like um, it's like when anyone plays a, a classic piece <coughs> or a kind of piece of music that everyone knows. They say the they may not the musician may not have written the music themselves. But when they play it, it becomes theirs. Well,
3: it's like singing the national anthem. Right. Don't, don't we all remember Houston singing the national anthem? I mean this has got to be the best it's one I've ever That's heard. Okay. Oh, really?
0: Oh. I do remember Lady Gaga singing the National on, Anthem. Either. It's on YouTube. You should, you should
3: grab it. I remember Roseanne. Doing it. But you know, good, bad, or otherwise, it's still singing the same thing. It's Still the national anthem. But they're putting their own stamp, their own stamp. I think that's really cool that God
0: recognized in this each man's service I think that's very powerful for us because sometimes like earlier, we earlier you can feel like well, what's my job my job is to carry the wood sticks my job is to carry the goat hair you know what? it I don't get to carry the big shiny gold thing that you know floats by itself. Oh, How can, cool was that? That I can never see. That I can never Stay see. Covered
3: before I walk in. Oh. Instead,
0: they uh, yeah. So there's certain things that it feels like there's lesser tasks, and God is kind of saying there's really not. Like yeah. they're all important to God. That's what Paul's talking about in the in the in First Corinthians. He's yeah, saying the whole body thing.
3: The whole body thing. If if, if the guy gets there with the menorah. And there isn't already a tabernacle to put it in. He's hosed.
0: Right? to do there? And, and so they, uh, Paul talks about it, It's like the foot can't say to the eye, I don't need you. Or vice versa. And, and we think about that. It's true as well with their own jobs, their own tasks. And that's why we talked about earlier about going out to the army save It's like all of our tasks in life are valuable. Whether your task is um, cleaning up after other people. Whether your task is teaching thousands of people whether your task is taking care of a small child, which is perhaps the most important. Um, whatever it might be, each of those jobs is serving God. Amen. If we do it correctly. Yes. Even the most noble task is treated with grace. greatest honor. Right. And we see that even, I mean, think about it from a, from a positioning perspective. That's kind of the way it goes with Morari, right? So Merari has like the Kind of the lamest job, really, put up the wood, the wood beams. But he has to do it first. He's treated like he's the most important. He's got to, Foundation. Do, it. He's got to do it last and first. And first. So he's
3: the one everybody sees. He's, he's the guy who's got to take it down after they get everything out and put it up before they can put anything in. So his
0: job looks like the least important, but actually it's the most critical. And I think this is uh, that's one thing that um, we learned it in the uh, in the Vogue. It says the phrase "every dog has a day." Right. Is in, It's in there, right? And that's the, the reason. Well, the reason is because they're teaching.
4: <laughs>
0: they're teaching,
4: <laughs> preaching with
0: intensity. <laughs> they're
4: teaching.
0: They're teaching that, that you want to respect everyone because somebody may seem like the better today. But, you know, he might, you know, you might be thinking, well, that's just a, a landowner. He owns a hotel that he named after himself. Oh, no, wait, now he's the president of the United States. So you, uh, you learn as you go that um, life even teaches us that each individual person has an intrinsic significant value that may not necessarily be on display in that moment. Um, and God is teaching us that every task really has the same Really, it, and it really, the greatest tragedy
1: is not that that each person doesn't become king or president or whatever you know some fantastic hero, oh! or great, great artist. But the tr- greatest tragedy is each person doesn't become God created them to be.
0: Right, and that yeah. And so when they talk Moses and Aaron, they would say repeatedly that. Moses and Aaron are treated equally in the scriptures. Well, the question is, like, really? Like, I mean, Moses and Aaron. Mo- Aaron is a great guy. But Moses. I mean, but Moses. And, and the sages say that, no, the reason why they were equal is because they both fulfilled their God-given task perfectly. In other words, it didn't matter that Moses was the one who was speaking the Torah out to the people and Aaron was the one who was just serving as high priest. The point was, they both did whatever God told them to do
3: exactly the right way. That's all that mattered. If you meet a man who lives in the middle of the world, who knows where, in the middle of nowhere, and has raised a godly family and is serving God and his children, it's normally a spectacular visit. Right. I'm looking for a fame or fortune, doesn't need to be the president. He's a godly man who's fulfilled his purpose. in that he did, as your father said. What God
0: I agree. And I think i I think of uh, David McDonald. he does kind of live out in the middle of nowhere. He's probably gonna be a lot more famous than he is today at some point uh-huh. given given his uh his progression in the in your sister company. But um he uh, his family is such a delight to work, spend time yes. with, and to watch them raise their girls. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a task of great significance. Um, for those of you who are listening, if there is I don't know if we're live here or not. We are live right now. We're live right now. If those and of you who are listening and wondering why are we so far into the portion? It's because we did get started a little early. Um, didn't have a minion, so we jumped jumped the gun a little bit. So um, you can hear the entire podcast online, online um, as a enjoy. recording. We'll be posting that later just so that everyone knows. Um, I think we've gotten through. Either, either way,
1: you'll have Richard's additional comment. <laughs> you, you will. Right. And for
0: those of you who, um, if, you, if you have a, a good, strong uh, baby to English translation, if you pass it along, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> Here's
1: exactly what he was saying. Because we yeah. want to know.
0: Obviously, it was of great importance. He spoke with great passion. <laughs> um, any other final comments? Anything else from the portion that anyone wants to pull out?
3: Um, just a comment, not on the portion, but um, we all are very cognizant of uh, Rabbi Foreman and Aleph Beda, and uh, if you didn't get a chance to listen to this week's Torah portion, uh, commentary by Rabbi Forman on the partial lab experiment, I um, actually brought in an intern this week, girl. girl and it was his daughter, and I got to tell you, for a guy who's desperately trying to learn the Hebrew, to hear this eight-year-old just rattle off the Hebrew at no, you know, with no problem, and then translate it on the fly into English, and uh, and be led along by Rabbi Foreman—it was extraordinary. So I. Uh, I lift that up as, a, as an encouragement. You want to you listen to that one. It was a, a great explanation for why the first four books of the Bible are named as they are. And how they all sort of link together. And I was, uh, I was impressed. Not only with his commentary, but with his Very
4: cool.
0: Alrighty, um, Mr. Martin, would you be with to do some prayer?
3: Sure. Father, we're grateful for our time to be together today. We pray, Father, as we, uh, as we leave, we honor you with the rest of our uh, Shabbat and that uh, uh, we would pursue your righteousness uh, and seek to fulfill the path you've set for us in living out the life that Master Yeshua and his for us. We pray in his name is so our perfect example